Welcome to Call and Character, a podcast for not-so-casual conversation about calling, culture, and other things that make for lives worth living. My name is Davy Henriksen, and I teach at Valparaiso University and serve as director of the Institute for Leadership and Service, the sponsor of this podcast. We're in the midst of season two of the podcast after kicking things off with Jamar Tisby last month. If you're new to the show, make sure to check out our back catalog of episodes with guests such as Esau McCauley, Makoto Fujimura, and Jessica Hooten-Wilson. Today, I talk with Tish Harrison-Warren, an Anglican priest and author. Her first book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, was published in 2016 and won the Christianity Today Book Award that year. Her new book is titled Prayer in the Night for Those Who Work or Watch or Weep. If you enjoy our conversation today, check out Tish's website, tishharrisonwarren.com for more information. And now, to the conversation. There's a childhood memory I have, when I was probably no older than six, of being lost in the woods at night. The extended Henriksen family was camping in central Indiana, a day's drive from Chicago. The uncles had spent the evening telling ghost stories, priming younger minds for terror and enchantment. And on the way to get firewood that night, I momentarily lost my way. Everything seems bigger and overflowing with meaning and pure excess in childhood. At the time in the woods, the sensory experience of darkness felt quite palpable, as if it had a thickness to it. It was immobilizing, and I stood alone for minutes, unable to move. In my memory, it was a cloudy and starless night, and trying to find my way back to the campsite felt like swimming through a sea of inky blackness. Darkness, whether literal or metaphorical, leaves you exposed and diminished. Spiritual darkness, the topic of our guest's new book, can put believers into an overburdened psychological state. Our sense of God is impaired, with reality moving as if in slow motion. What do we do when confronted by the absence of God? How is prayer possible when your heart is hollowed out? Is there grace to be found in debilitating weakness? And is it foolish to hope to add to the litany of gospel beatitudes, blessed are the vulnerable, the depressed, the God-forsaken? Tish Harrison Warren, one of my absolute favorite authors, published the award-winning book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, at the end of 2016. Her new book, Prayers in the Night, begins autobiographically with events that took place in 2017 when she went through her own period of bone-weary, heartbreaking loss and lament. It's an exquisite, heart-rending book, and it's my pleasure to have Tish on the podcast to discuss it today. So, Tish, my friend, welcome. Thank you. Great introduction. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Well, thank you very much. It's great to have you here. I want to begin by um, kind of referring back to your first book, which many listeners are probably familiar with, Liturgy of the Ordinary. And in that book, you asked your readers to cultivate a spiritual imagination for the quotidian, the mundane, as a space for meaning and spiritual formation. And the cover, I think at least, is quite iconic. It's just a piece of toast with peanut butter and jam on it. And and the book is almost like a, a prayer missile for brushing teeth or going to bed or having a relatively meaningless fight with your spouse. And in the new book, you stay focused on, I think, the liturgies of life and the, the sort of down to earth ways in which we are spiritually formed, but there's a solemnity and perhaps I think 
even a transcendence to the subject matter. So I wanted to ask you if you could explain what it was like to shift your writing from focusing on the ordinary to something that reaches you know, the depths of the human condition or touching on things like the dark night of the soul. What was that transition like for you? Yeah. I'd say, um, man, I have a few different things to say. One is, um, as a writer, it was um, it was a bit of a risk in the sense that um, my first book did really well. Um, and so the temptation and what is often encouraged from um, book, you know, people, agents and publishers and stuff is to like, do it again, <laughs> right? Write the sequel if a book does well. Um, so, um, you know, it was a, a risk in the sense of departing from what, um, from the, the pattern of the first um, book in some ways, but it was also not really my choice. I mean, I think this, this book begins my own biography and my own story. And so, um, so I was wrestling with these questions of how to trust God. I was wrestling with spiritual darkness, as you said. And so, um, so the book, my last book came out in 2016, the end of two, the, really December, 2016. And then um, the events of this book, which is my father's death and, and two different miscarriages and a cross country move that began in January, 2017. So it was somewhat ironic that I wrote this book on the ordinary and then my life, all of my routines, <laughs> everything that was ordinary kind of flew out the window. So, and I was sort of left with writing kind of the liturgy of the, when nothing feels ordinary, right? Um, but I would also say, so that is true. And also I do think there is some overlap in the books um, in that one of the things, one of the points that was important to me that I make in this book is that um, grief, that loss is an ordinary thing, that it's part of all of our lives. I think there was a time when I would have seen grief as consigned to a certain group of people who had particularly difficult lives um, or had under, undergone sort of catastrophic tragedy. Um, and it, And when I first thought of this book, idea, I actually felt inadequate. You know, it was like, I, I didn't grow, I don't have a terminal illness. I didn't grow up in an abusive home. I, I haven't lost a, a, a living a child after birth. I didn't, I haven't lost a spouse. So in many ways, like my life is pretty averagely good. Um, and, uh, and so the, even the grief that I describe in these books, the losses are fairly common. I mean, almost all of us will lose a parent um, if we live long enough. And one in four um, pregnancies and then miscarriage is very common. It's very common to move, to feel lonely, to feel anxious. These are, these are common things. And um, so one of the thing, a, a reviewer actually just recently said this, it said sort of her first book was about, um, meeting God in these ordinary moments of her life. And, and you kind of discover in her second book that, um, that these places of 
darkness, loss, grief, suffering, questioning, doubt are common and everywhere and also ways to encounter God. And so um, this is, um, it's certainly less sort of quotidian, boring day, but I also want to say that, um, and I say in the book that grief is kind of part of part of life. The analogy I use in a book is like an old decrepit family pet that's just kind of in the corner of every room. It's just even when there's other things happening and even in times of great joy, there there's always this sort of shadow side of life that's there um, that we have to contend with as we have to contend with it theologically and we have to contend with it emotionally. Um, and whether we contend with it or not, it's there, it's reality. And I would just say the last book focused on one day, it was about one day in my life. And so I sort of turn to night. Um, my last chapter ended at, with, with the final moments of the day. And then in some ways, the next um, the next book starts there, although it's a completely different book. I mean, it's um, it it deals with practice, but in it's a completely different. It's looking at a completely different um, part and emotional tenor and um, sort of place in our spiritual life for sure. So you and I met back in early 2018. Um, just subsequent to a lot of the events that you describe in the book and in anyone's life. And I think this, I'll say this is certainly true for me at the time as well. There's only the, the tip of the iceberg, the emotional iceberg showing at any time. And when we met and got to know each other, I, I was generally unaware of the the enormity of what you had just gone through. I, I knew a little bit, but a lot of it was, was for obvious reasons, hidden and obscured. And obviously, most human beings tend to not present the the extraordinary or the ordinary griefs that we that are so profoundly affecting us, because it would just be socially awkward to walk around with that <laughs> decrepit old dog <laughs> at all times, right? People want to ask, "What's going on?" Someone, yeah, <laughs> right. So, what was it though, like processing in more private terms, perhaps processing the bodily and spiritual trauma, really, that you? went through in 2017 and, and how did that process play out not just immediately after the events themselves but for the months and now years since yeah well I honestly think writing this book was a huge part of that I am um, so 2017 was really hard and there were a lot of spiritual questions and so in 2018 when I met you I mean certainly I probably didn't share all of this because we just met, but also there was a sense of like, oh, I'm ready to move on. Like um, I set out actually to write a different book. I, I had a different book idea um, that wasn't a bad book idea at all, at all. I mean, I hope to still write it, but I, I went on a writing retreat. I went off by myself to start the book, which it does help me to start books um, to have three or four uninterrupted days to kind of charge into it. Um, so I went to a friend of mine knows this about me and they were going out of town and said, just come, come use our house and just stay here and be by yourself. And so I had all this time of silence and prayer and writing and going on walks. And um, I was just trying to write this other book and start, started on the other book and it, on a walk and in prayer, I had this idea for this book and it was like for the next several weeks, I just could not, it just kept 
it was like nipping at my heels wherever I I just could, I was trying to write a different book and this, I couldn't get away from this. And, um, and I remember saying, God, like, I don't, I please like, don't, I don't want to write a book about darkness and night and suffering because I, I just like, I don't want to have to go back into all that. Like I just got through it. And like, can I write a book about joy now? <laughs> like, the, you know, I don't know, three steps to get rich quick or something. I don't know. But I, um, it just felt like, oh, I don't want to have to walk through all that again. And, um, and, but what I realized, honestly, was that I, I was, there was this unanswered question that, which was, how do I trust God? And in a world where God does not stop bad things from happening to me, how do I know that God sees me and loves me? Um, And I, it was the question in many ways that I was avoiding that I wanted to just, I wanted to um, not have to face and, and I was doing that through all sorts of ways, including, avoiding nighttime because nighttime was, was, was quiet and, and with, um, all my doubts, anxiety, loss, grief, fear would sort of bubble up. So I would, I would watch Netflix or read political commentary. And, um, this was, you know, the first year of Donald Trump's presidency. So there's plenty to sort of read and process. Um, and, and I was even this other book idea, which was kind of just a sort of heady theological, book, there's nothing wrong with heady theology. There's nothing wrong with reading political commentary, but I was sort of using it to, to, as the, um, one of my reviewers said, kind of cork theology, uh, cork, cork grief with theology, um, and with distraction. And so it felt like that I, it, it just almost became a dare from God of this question of how to how do I trust God um, to just try to plunge right into it? And I didn't know how really until, until I was able to use this um, prayer from Compline that the book is, the book is um, framed around one particular prayer. And it was like, that gave me the structure, like the lattice for all to really be able to um cultivate these questions or to look at these questions. It was like, uh, maybe a better analogy is that gave me kind of the, the ropes that I needed to like (laughs) spelunk into the darkness, like to go and actually face it and ask these questions. And so, um, I don't know if spelunk is a word, but spelunking is. So anyway, part of walking through this for me was, resisting the ability or the resisting my great desire to move on too quickly and to actually sit with the questions and the doubts and the grief. Um, and part of that was writing this book. Um, part of that, um, was the prayers of Compline, which become a big part of this. And part of it was, um, letting myself feel grief whenever, whenever it came. So, I mean, I, I think, grief comes in cycles. So you could not feel it for a while. And then suddenly 
one Sunday morning in church, find yourself weeping and not quite sure why. And so instead of saying, oh, it's too long or I should get over this or even, you know, as I said, this is really common. A lot of people go through this, pull it together, but to really pay attention to like, what, where is this coming from? What is this showing me? Where is God in the middle of this? Um, and I think, I think that's the question, right? Like in, in the same way you brought up Liturgy of the Ordinary, that that's, that's a book that sort of pauses the day sitting in traffic and brushing your teeth and says, where is God in the middle of this? I think I had to stop and, um, and, and ask that. And, and particularly through, I talk about in the book, the practice of weeping, of grieving, which um, I think is, I've come to see as a Christian practice, lament and grief, and the, and then the practice of watching and waiting and, um, and training oneself to kind of look for light in the darkness, um, and then working like to, um, see how we can join others in their pain and also join God in the redemption of the world. It was really through those three practices that I was able to, um, to respond to the events of, of, 2017 in my life in a way that was better than just like collapsing into Netflix <laughs> and avoiding, um, all avoiding the year altogether and just trying to move on too quickly. Maybe Netflix should be added to one of the stages of grief for many. Absolutely. Years. Yeah. And that's true. And I say in the book, like, um, when you're in deepest suffering, you know, like if, if what you need to do is like eat a greasy burger and what, and binge watch a show, like do that. But I think we don't want to stay there. I think in general, the way we relate, we respond to grief and loss that we're taught to in America is by distraction, by busyness, by moving forward relentlessly. Um, and so I needed to move from, simply distracting and simply um, collapsing into coming to allow God to use the, the grief and suffering in my life as part of my own renewal and formation and um, connection with God, like um, knowing God. Oh yeah. I mean, when you were describing kind of what, your initial attitude was when we met, you know, kind of very soon after a lot of these traumatic events and, and the, the modes of distraction and busyness that we often employ. It made me think, you know, when you have an open wound, you're really just trying to do triage. You're trying to do almost anything you can to make it through. And maybe that's Netflix. Maybe that's, you know, for me, it was like extreme running or like working 17 hour days. Like you're just doing whatever you can to get through, but that's, that's not sustainable. Eventually the wounds have to heal. And the hope eventually is that the wounds will scar over in some sort of healthy way. And it struck me that your book in a lot of ways was inviting readers to con to contemplate through this prayer of Compline, what it would look like to move beyond the triage into a sort of patient confrontation of the wounds in the hopes that they do scar over and that they do of course change you, but in ways that maybe could even be surprisingly to your good. 
one of the lines that, that jumped out to me um, is that you describe faith, particularly in the context of grieving and, and, and suffering, as more craft than feeling. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to ask if you could un- unpack that a little bit, what you say about that in the book, and, and why you think this idea of faith as craft or an art form is maybe important when you're, you're going through the process of letting wounds heal. Yeah. Yeah. So I bring that up um, in the context of talking about prayer. Um, and what I mean by that, well, I'll tell you to be clear, what I don't mean by that is that faith is something that we sort of achieve on our own or um, that we certainly that we don't achieve salvation on our own or work our way up and to God's grace. Um, and then, and it's not like some of us can be really good at it. You know, like some people are good painters and some aren't. And my daughter is like great at a visual artist and drawing and I can draw like three things. Well, and that's it. That's all. So um, I, it's not like, you know, we can be good at faith or bad at faith or whatever, but, but I do mean, um, so Mad- I quote in that Madeline Lingle talks about um, that when people enter an art form, that there's, there's more, there's, there's a miraculous kind of wondrous nature to that. And that she says there's Shakespeare put more truth on the page than he could know. Bach um, composed more beautifully than he could compose that the idea is that um and and i see this all the time as a writer that there's there there's a reality bigger than you that you enter into through this craft where um you're writing things that you didn't know you didn't know you knew that there's more truth goodness and beauty that is coming out of you than than you knew that there was in you right that there's something bigger that you're participating in and um, and that's true. Um, but I also think that part of that is that, um, you just show up. I mean, um, I can mostly speak out of writing here, but when I have to write, I just show up and write whether I feel like it or not. If I waited till when I just felt the, the zone or felt inspired to write, it would just never happen. And, and so you show up and you do your craft and what that ends up doing is shaping you, is um, is forming you. And so in the same way, ultimate, I mean, grace is the first and last word in the Christian life. I think um, salvation and, and, and our transformation is by God's grace alone. But we're given these means of grace, right? These ways of, of prayer and practices that we can enter into when we are full of faith and full of fervor or when we are completely feel empty of faith and empty of energy and empty of fervor. And, um, and they end up being this way of shaping us and allowing us to kind of receive grace, to wait on grace. There it's, um, I mean, I also, this is a different part of the book, but I talk about prayer and um, bird watching in the sense that you can't control it. Like you can't control if a bird's going to show up or not, but you can go outside and look. And, and then there's these moments, these flashes of grace, these, 
these times of mercy. And, and I've experienced that where, you know, there will be um, spiritually kind of a, a realization or a moment of worship or a moment of wonder or a moment of joy that feels like, oh, wow, like this, this is, I, I, I may have never believed until this moment. I mean, th- this is a new, I, I, I see God in a new way, or I see myself in a new way. And I see, I'm able to enter repentance in a new way, but that's sometimes few and far between. And a lot of the times we take up um, the craft of faith to shape us, um, whether, you know, whether we feel particularly great about it that day or not. And it's just much bigger, just like craft is a much bigger thing that we enter into, we submit to. It does feel like that with the, with um, the Christian life, that there's something, it's not just sort of this um, internal experience of self-expression, but it's a much bigger room that we can walk into and join with. I'd like to read Um, a passage, one of my favorites from fairly early on in the book. This is on page 12. And it touches on some of these themes. You write, I didn't know how to approach God anymore. There were too many things to say, too many questions without answers. My depth of pain overshadowed my ability with words. And more painfully, I couldn't pray because I wasn't sure how to trust God. Martin Luther wrote about seasons of devastation of faith when any naive confidence in the goodness of God withers. It's then that we meet what Luther calls the left hand of God. God becomes foreign to us, perplexing, perhaps even terrifying. Mm-hmm. So I wanna ask you, I mean, in, in light of what you're, you're describing about this uh, idea of faith as a craft, as something that we work on even when we don't feel it deep in our bones. What happens though, let's push it just a little bit further, when you have a sort of resentment or perhaps even anger for, if not God himself, God's left hand, what God is doing. Um, And what happens to a Christian spirituality that does or does not leave space for anger toward God or the sort of guttural cry of lament that you describe elsewhere in the book? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I've, I've come to think that um, if we're really going to be honest about the darkness and brokenness in the world, that um, sharp words with for God with God are almost a inevitable part of that of of being honest about the brokenness and darkness in the world and in, in, an inevitable part of the Christian life if we live it long enough if we keep with it long enough it um, and we see this in Scripture right we see particularly in the Psalms the Psalms of Lament. But this sort of like, how long, oh Lord, and um, where are you? And I, I, I called to you, and you did not answer. You know, and there's other places where it's like I called to you, and you did answer. <laughs> um, so there's these, there's these responses of trust, and but then they're like cheek and jowl with these like uh, responses of of frustration of. Um, of anger, of uncertainty. Um, and I mean, even of course, Christ, ultimately Christ himself, why have you forsaken me? Um, and so um, I think um, one of the things I say in the book that has become more and more true or more and more 
apparent to me as a way of saying that is that is if we are to sustain, if we're going to continue to walk in this way of Jesus over a lifetime, that we're going to experience almost every emotion that one can toward God. And, um, and we're going to, to have times where faith waxes and faith wanes and that we need to, we need to, those of us like me who are pastors and leaders need to let people know this is normal. This is a normal part of the Christian life. Um, This isn't sort of aberrant or deformed spirituality. I mean, it can be, of course, this is why this is all um, we need, you know, mentors and community and spiritual leaders and directors that know us well, because of course it can be a kind of um, spirit of um, pride towards God or uh, uh, I mean, pride in judging God or, um, or whatever. I mean, it can, it can come out of a, of a spirit that's really um, turned against God, but it can also be just at being absolutely honest about the brokenness of the world. Um, and, and the real sense of times of that God's promises and our lived reality aren't adding up. They're not, it's not making sense. And, um, so I think we have to leave room for that. If we don't, um, two things happen. One, either we end up having a shallower faith because we're trying to save God's reputation. We're trying to protect God from our own anger or, or whatever we, um, so we, um, we get, we get pat answers. We, um, we try to minimize the darkness. I mean, I see this a lot of trying to sort of, um, too easily, um, silence grief or, um, or, or give it, you know, just a, just kind of an easy, an overly saccharine answer so that we don't, so that we can sort of just move on and victory in Jesus and, um, and not, not really deal with the grief. And I see this in churches all the time. And sometimes it's out of a good place of wanting to emphasize the resurrection and emphasize renewal and emphasize like the good news which makes sense. Um, but if we, if we, if in doing that, we don't talk about the power of death. We don't talk about the bad news, like the power of sin, the power of brokenness and darkness in the world. Um, if we end up sort of minimizing or ignoring those darker um, questions or the left hand of God, as we're saying, we inevitably end up ignoring or minimizing would be a better word, resurrection that, um, we don't set out to minimize resurrection, but if we, if we, if we, however we do this, if we minimize, um, death, grief, suffering, then we inevitably minimize, um, the reality of Jesus making every, every last thing new. Um, so, that's one way is we get sort of a happy, clappy, shallow Christianity. And I do think that there's certainly through wor- ways of worship 
and in a lot of churches in America, um, evangelical churches, but also sometimes mainline churches, um, that we are taught to be less honest with God than the scriptures themselves are. Um, but then I think the other response then is that folks who kind of see through that um, leave. They they walk away from faith. They, um, however you want to say this, they they um, denounce what they believed or they come to believe something else. So I there's a study that I cite in the book that was part of me writing this book, which was from Barna that said um, that of folks who have um, rejected the Christian faith, about a third of them in the in Gen Z and, and millennials um, do so because they have a hard time believing that a good God could allow suffering in the world. And what they have found is that that number, uh, about a third, that percentage, a third, is higher than we've seen in the last several generations. And so this seems to be an, this idea of theodicy, of how, how can God be good and powerful and bad things regularly happen in the world, seems to be an increasing issue with younger folks, even though in some ways our lives are easier. We grew up with vaccines and annulet breaks and... Um, you know, air conditioning, <laughs> but these questions of suffering um, and where is God in the midst of it are loud. And if, if, if folks have those questions or have anger at God and the church tells them to like hush up about it or that there isn't a response to it um, or that it's inappropriate to voice that um, those questions, they're not going to go away. It's just that folks will say, well, the, this is not good or true. This is not beautiful. This is completely unhelpful. And this is emotionally dishonest. Um, so people need emotional discipleship, just like every other sort of discipleship. And if the church fails to provide that, um, we either have a shallow faith, like I said, that comes across as cliche, but can also come across as really angry, really controlling um, or we, people leave, people just give up on, on the Christian faith altogether. I'm going to take a turn towards a more philosophical and abstract question that I hope makes sense. There's, um, a line in one of Christian Wyman's poems is one of my favorite poets writing today. Um, the line is darkness starts inside of things, but keeps on going when the things are gone. And in the context of the poem, the idea seems to be that the sense of loss takes on a life of its own, acquires its own reality, its own objects of memory, and that whatever tragedy caused the sadness in the first place is outlived by the grief that follows in its wake. And, and I, I've been wondering about this idea. Is there a sense in which the, the feeling, the experience of loss, sadness, and lament are in some sense more meaningful than whatever caused them in the first place. Huh. I don't know. Um, I think to some extent, like grief, sadness, loss, they all point to loves, right? It, um, the reason that, well, I mean, I'll just take one example. The reason that I'm, 
miss my father and continue to miss him after his loss is because of the great value he had in my life. And so um, I think um, underneath all of our grief is love lost, but also a real deep sense that things are not how they are supposed to be. In this one sense, I would say yes to your question that um, grief begins sometimes with an event or a, a particular loss, but it points to a greater reality that things are not the way they are supposed to be and to a deeper longing for things to be made right, for things to be um, like, I think um, Frodo Baggins says that for all the sad things to become untrue, right? Um, that, that there's a longing for wholeness. And I think that's holy. I mean, I think that's, we are made to have a sense that things are, we're made to have a sense of, of longing for things to be whole. Um, and in, in a lot of ways, the Christian story is, is unique, at least from sort of secular materialism and being able to say, man, that the grief that says it doesn't feel like, so here's what I'm saying. When you lose someone close to you, it doesn't just feel sad. It feels wrong. It feels cosmically wrong. It feels like things like the sun didn't rise and it was supposed to, right? It feels like things, the deep order of the universe has been um, thwarted in a way that just feels like it feels um, like it, it's, um, it's almost personal, right? Like it, it feels like it, what I mean is I like taking it personally, like it's like things are not supposed to be this way. And I want to say like, yes. Right. I think that the Christian story would say, absolutely. Like that's right to feel this way. It's right to feel like we should not have to live in a world with a global pandemic. Like that's, a, that, that is a not, that's not just a sort of wishful thinking. That's actually like, the, the wrongness, the kind of ontological cosmic wrongness of that is real. It's pointing to something true. And the flip side of that, you're longing for wholeness. You're longing for relationships that are um, intact and eternal is, tr is because we're made for that, like because we're made for that longing. So I do think that, I mean, frankly, like the scriptures talk about, that we um, we meet Jesus in his sufferings and that our suffering is somehow caught up as all part of, of his suffering. Um, and so in, in that, in that, in sort of the mercy and mystery, deep, deep mystery, because at this point we're talking about things beyond us, um, grief in the hands of God is the raw material that can kind of be catalytic in bringing us to the very life of God. Um, so in all those ways, it does feel like grief 
points to things bigger and truer than just the loss of 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 one person or of one relationship or of one job or of one sense of security or whatever. So I think um, there is kind of a larger ontological reality that we can enter into through grief. Um, That said, I do think there's the love, just the loves that are underneath our grief are real in and of themselves. And we can honor, um, we can honor that. And even if the love was like, it's something small, right? Like um, I'm trying, I loved, this is very small intentionally, but I, I love sitting in coffee shops and reading books. I love it. It sustains me. And I haven't been able to do it for over 360 days now because we don't have coffee shops. Um, and I, I wouldn't feel sort of safe drinking coffee in a crowded coffee shop in Pittsburgh. So um, because of COVID. So that it's a small love, but the the love underneath that of community, of reading, of enjoyment in life, like those are real losses to be honored. Um, but I also think they point to a wholeness that I long for um, that's real and true. And I, and I think the church needs to say yes, like yes to that grief, that saying grief, uh, these emotions tell us true things about reality. Is that what you were asking or did I just, was that a thousand miles away from the point of your question? Well, the question was intentionally meandering. So I think I'm meandering (laughs) exactly what was called for. No, that's that's lovely. And yeah, I mean, I think the question for me is also just like the grief usually, you know, far outlasts, you spend a lot more time in grieving than you do in experiencing, experiencing the trauma or the wounding in itself. And so how do you, how do you cope with that? How does that become a sort of lived reality? COVID has given us like a sense of loss, like all these little things, like you say, like reading a coffee shop, um, doing a a lunch date with a friend, uh, having office hours with students, these little things that in the past were things you check off, maybe were even chores to some extent. There's a sense of loss, but there's also like in their absence, there's like almost a whole new reality of like living in COVID tide, you know, that I've, I pondered. I want to ask you, I want to shift a little bit away from the actual topic of your book, which is prayer and the way in which prayer was a, a lifeline for you, especially in 2017 and afterward. But I'm curious about other things or people or practices that got you through the worst periods of grieving or lament day in and a day out sort of fashion. So when I think about my own, you know, period where I was grieving and lamenting uh, profound loss, my lifesavers usually came in the form of uh, specific companions, companionship, friends who were intentional about sharing their life with me when mine was kind of in a, in a period of, of disruption, and friends who also disrupted my own avoidance of hard things by intervening and, and, and discussing hard things with me. I want to ask you, aside from prayer, which you have a whole book about here, are there, are there other little interventions, other little practices or relationships that kept you going in the most difficult times? Yes. Uh, yeah, of course. And, and um, so friendship is huge. I mean, of course, like I just could not have I couldn't get through my life good or bad without, without friends. And um, often 
God's grace or mercy to us shows up with, um, with good friends, right. And, and people that were able to bear our burdens with us in that, um, for me also, I talk about this a little in the book, but so I hope it's okay to bring up some stuff in the book, but this isn't a prayer per se, but beauty became just so huge for me. I mean, um, when I was in deep grief, I was just hungering for beauty in, um, like, like a, like a hungry person in a, I guess a thirsty person in a desert. So it, I just needed, um, like, uh, nature, like being out in natural beauty. Uh, I spent a lot of time, like, um, wanting to go to art museums and just like, I needed, it felt like beauty was this, this thing that I needed. Um, I needed some sort of trans, like transcendent, um, reminder of goodness, um, in the world, like that are, there's comfort, there's good things. So, so friends, beauty, um, I know this is a little bit, I don't know if this quite counts since you're asking me things outside of prayer, but the, um, the Eucharist was huge. Um, I wish that I could have talked about um, the Eucharist or communion, the Lord's Supper or whatever people want to call it in the book. I kind of started to, and I mention it, um, but it was like a whole lot to add kind of, um, and it was towards the end of the book. So uh, I just sort of glance off of it, but, but it, it's a practice that completely proclaims death and vulnerability and brokenness at the same time as life and, and, um, you know, redemption, atonement and resurrection. And so these practices of the church that kind of acknowledged the darkness that held the darkness and the light just right together were very helpful to me, particularly, particularly the Eucharist. Um, but, um, yeah, I would say that probably those were besides prayer friends. Oh, uh, well, friends, beauty, the Eucharist, but I'd also, I, this is a subset of beauty to some extent. I would add music, man. Mm, yeah. um, when I was going through this, there was, it was funny because it was sort of like, I would get on certain albums and that was the only album I could listen to, but yeah. I would listen to that <laughs> album like a thousand times. So I would go, I can kind of mark the grieving through like, <laughs> it was like, first it started and there could be no music. Then I would let in like Rich Mullins. Then it was Sufjan Stevens. It was the Sufjan Stevens stage of grief. <laughs> then, <laughs> You're such a Christian hipster. <laughs> I know, I really do have Christian hipster music taste. I don't mean to, but I, I mean, I don't, I'm not. <laughs> trying to, but man, like I just, it's perfect. I'm, yeah, I'm just naturally the, I'm like the nat the natural Christian hipster, but I am. Um, yeah. So, uh, and, and, and then it was Damien Dorado. I just couldn't stop it. So I really do feel like it was like, I like, as I, there were different times of grief and I would, I would, I just was, I needed music and, um, 
the church music became important here too. Like it, at times that I couldn't pray, it was helpful to be in church and to sing or to not sing and have other people sing around me and me to sort of be able to soak that in. Um, so music um, became huge, which has been, of course, a grief of COVID as we can't have that on Sunday. But um, but really that was, that was very, music was very helpful for me. And I bring up, and the book is full of music. I mean, I didn't, that was somewhat unintentional, but there's, I just quote a ton of songs in it. And I think that part of that is because um, when songs get to the um, the emotion of things in ways that, um, that prose don't or can't. That's lovely. So reading your book, I, I mean, one way I, I described this to you before we started recording is that I, there was a sort of a, a pleasant shock of recognition and that you could almost feel in the very like timber of, of your soul kind of a resonance of like a, I felt the same way despite being going through very different circumstances and very different sorts of pain and loss. But I want to ask you a, a, a bit for a bit of pastoral advice for somebody who hasn't yet gone through tremendous loss or trauma, um, maybe who's managed to pass the first several decades of their life without some tremendous grief. What would you tell that person, somebody who has yet to experience deep wounds as they maybe prepare or train themselves or discipline themselves spiritually to be somebody who probably inevitably will encounter some sort of deep grief or loss in the future? Yeah. So um, a few things. Number one, I think, um, it is helpful to get around people who are who have chronic suffering. What in the book I refer to as the afflicted. Like, um, it's like be around the homeless, be around people in the recovery community or, or that are struggling with addiction. Be around folks that are um, that are suffering and grieving and intentionally, and don't be there to sort of just heroically help them be there to learn from them because if people who are in that have deep suffering or who are experiencing affliction I just they um they have deep insight into reality into the human condition and to God um that and wisdom even to glean so that is helpful I mean I am. I remember talking to a college student who felt like struggling with whether or not God was real and around kind of questions of suffering without, like you were saying, a ton of suffering yet in his life. And I, I would, would encourage him to like get to know prisoners and homeless folks. Like that I feel like they're that any kind of like false sense of consumer consumerism and kind of a charmed, comfortable reality that we live in can be punctured easily um, by, by being with people that are suffering. But second, I would say, um, I mean, my book is really not, I, I don't think anyway, about sort of like catastrophic or deep, deep, like those times in our life where just, there is, there is a chapter on suffering, which I would I, those those things in our life that our whole life is going to be divided into before and after, right? The things that happen to us, traumas, loss, where everything is marked um, by that trauma and loss. 
Um, but there's also um, really, in, there's a, there's kind of a, a genre of Christian literature that's about catastrophic loss. That's about deep times of suffering. This book isn't really that. It's more about the grief that accompanies all of us. Um, and in big way, and some of those ways are big for, for a lot of us, especially if we live long enough, as you said, um, but some are small. Um, and so I think that one thing people can do is to begin to tend to the grief they already have, um, which is surprisingly common, even for folks who haven't suffered in, in like big catastrophic ways. There are disappointments there are friendships that you that are broken or that have conflict in them. There were institutions like the church that we wanted more of and have been disappointed by. Um, there's, um, yeah, there, there's, and, and I think with these small things, we can say, well, you know, it's not really real or it's a first world problem. Um, but um you know, we live in the first world and these are real problems and these are real griefs. And so I think we need to, I don't mean wallow in them or or make them more big than they actually are or make them more dramatic. That's not what I mean. I don't mean being dramatic. I mean, being curious about how God might meet us even in our small losses and our small sicknesses. I bring in the book, I talk about um, Scott Cairns uh, quotes a, a monk that says, um, um, that paradise will be full of men and women whose can who cancer saved their life, meaning they had these in these deep battles with cancer, they um, they came to know their own need and and came to receive love and receive the love of God in a way that they never would have without. And I say, like, well, if that's true of cancer, could that be true of, you know, the flu, like, could that be true of smaller things that those, even those small things can, small ways of suffering count as suffering and can be ways of encounter with God. So I would just tend to those, like even in prayer and journaling in quiet to the smaller ways of suffering, instead of saying, well, someone has it worse or it could be worse or whatever, it was only the flu. So where did God meet you in that or how how, like what it, what's the reality shown in that and what way is that weakness that you experienced true about you more generally um so and the book gets into that actually so read my book would be, I guess be another <laughs> advice um but the last thing I'd say is there is some like there is precedent for kind of entering into smaller, taste of suffering through Christian asceticism, through practices like fasting and, um, you know, giving up um, certain like good activities that we like, maybe Netflix and a greasy burger, going back to that, which again, all for Netflix and a greasy burger, but maybe there's times we intentionally enter into deprivation of comfort um, as more or less kind of practice, practicing suffering, um, knowing that there will be times of much greater loss that we would never choose, that we would never enter into, that we uh, willingly enter into. Um, the, the, 
And it's not like suffering is in and of itself salvific. I want to be really clear about that. And I say that in the book. I don't actually think there there can be a way Christians can talk about suffering like it's a good thing. And I really don't think it is. I think it's a bad thing. And it's it's um, it will be defeated. It's not it's not in and of itself a good thing. But I do think um, we are all oh, no, 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 that's too broad. Many of us, myself, certainly. Uh, um, I just have an absolute addiction to ease, to things being simple, things being easy, things being comfortable. Um, and I've had enough kind of privilege in my life and frankly, blessing in my life to kind of prop that up. Um, and that's not entirely bad, but I think, um, I think taking on some specific intentional ways of denying ourselves um, does help loosen our grip on, on the expectation that our life will always be easy or that our life is only about ourselves or our life is only about our own comfort. Um, And this could be something as easy as giving away money, right. To other folks, um, helping to alleviate the suffering of others through intentionally giving up some of our own comfort, um, using our privilege in ways that help those with less privilege. Like these are, these are important steps, not only for our own sanctification or um, transformation, but because, um, but, I mean, I think if you live, if living long enough, we'll all face deep grief and ultimately our own death. And so um, we prepare for that in small ways. So all through small ways, like that's so much of what the Christian life is about. There's the old line, of course, about how Christians ought to live in memento mori in memory of of death. <laughs> you know, the faces all of us in the human condition. But I, I guess uh, you know a twist of that would be we all live also in the memory or expectation of suffering. Not that we you know. That's right valorize it or hope for it, but that it still shapes us and, or at least ought to shape us in the way that we form disciplines that prepare us for that and living in that reality. And your book, Tish, is honestly like, I, I put it up there with something like a grief observed with, in terms of uh, the richness of the conversation about themes around grief and finding meaning in it and finding ways to argue with God and, and find you lose yourself and find yourself again through this process. So I, again, I can't recommend this book more highly to, to listeners. And it's called prayer in the night for those who work or watch or weep published by university. As of today, it's available on Amazon and other places. Although I know there's been some difficulty with the the release, but um, make sure uh, if uh, you're interested in the themes of, of this book, you go out and purchase at least one copy and maybe two to give, to a friend who might uh, find it um, rich and rewarding as well. Tesh, thank you so much for the conversation. It's it's obviously always um, really a delight to talk with you. Yes, yes, it's great to talk to you. And um, thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening to Call in Character, a podcast from the Institute for Leadership and Service at Valparaiso University. If you have any feedback or questions, Follow us on the Institute's Facebook page or send an email to lead.serve at valpo.edu. Our production team includes Aaron Morrison and Kim Neiman. Please subscribe to Call and Character on iTunes, Spotify, and other places podcasts are found. And leave us a comment and a rating. Until next time. Mm-hmm.